From failure to power, from collaboration to money, from participation to equity, we want to poke and provoke conversations about the key themes we need to address as urban resilience practitioners, researchers, and policymakers. Welcome to Urban Resilience Dialogues. I am Chiara. And I'm Karina. In this episode of Urban Resilience Dialogues, we are talking about water. Water is at the very heart of the climate crisis, as crucial to adaptation as carbon is to mitigation. Our increasingly variable climate is profoundly altering the water cycle, and this jeopardizes shared water resources and increases flood and drought risk. Water is also a human right, yet very rarely we value it when we have it. While we don't have it, we have to spend considerable resources to find, collect, and transport it. So in this episode, we are going to explore some of the challenges we face in seeking to increase our water resilience, and we'll be discussing more about how we can better value this precious and finite element without which life would be impossible. And to explore this all with us, we're joined by Eleanor Treadwell. So Eleanor is Project Officer for World WaterNet. Uh, she's coordinating the, world, the Water Operator Partnerships with Amsterdam's Public Water Utility in West Africa. She works with utilities in public-public partnerships um, to improve operations and maintenance, as well as in securing investments for safe, sufficient and sustainable water. She participates actively in the global water community, representing young professionals in the Valuing Water Initiative, Amsterdam and Stockholm Water Weeks. So, Eleanor, welcome to Urban Resilience Dialogues. Um, and to open our episode today, we'd love to hear about a bit about your journey. What, what is your strongest memory about water? This is possibly not the strongest memory, but my fondest memory about water is just the feeling that I get when I go back to the southwest of the UK and jump in the cold, salty water for the first time in a, in a long time. And the total feeling of calm that I get being suspended in the water where all the stress and worries that accumulate just wash away. And that for me is why water is so captivating because of what it can evoke in so many different ways. Mm, thank you. And, and then how did you end up working on issues regarding water and urban resilience? For me, water has always been the thing to, to work with and work on. And I've been fascinated by it from policy, um, scientific and uh, economic angles. But now I'm not actually sure if, I, if it's because I work in a public water sector that I actually work on urban resilience, or maybe I work on water because I'm actually working on urban resilience through the, the lens of water infrastructure. But everything that we do at World WaterNet is connected to improving the operational excellence of our partner utilities. And um, WaterNet is the Amsterdam public water operator, which is the only utility in the Netherlands that addresses the whole water cycle. So we come at um, water challenges from a very holistic perspective. And these public, public partnerships for technological and organizational capacity building, I'm working with the Malian wastewater operator and my whole concept of what urban resilience is and also my relationship to water has really changed since working in the, in the West African context. 
Mm, thank you for that. And and what great segue into our first theme about how we value water and, and also how these values change depending on, on where we are and, and our relationship with water. And I was reflecting on the valuing water principles, um, and they were first set out by, by the UN high-level panel on water in 2018. And I was thinking the aim of this initiative is to see how these different principles can ultimately make us um, better decisions impacting water. And the first principle is to recognize and embrace water's multiple values. And, and this really means appreciating that water has different meanings and uses um, to different groups in our societies. So, Eleanor, I was wondering, what is your take on this principle and, and what are some of the multiple values that the water holds for these different groups, but also different geographies? So I've had the good fortune to experience multiple values of water in different contexts that I've lived in in different parts of the world and had the chance to view these multiple values through the lenses of different perspectives through friends and conversations that I've had in these places respectively. But recently I read somewhere that uh, once you carry your own water, you will learn the value of every drop. And this really struck a chord with me as I was going for a run in the Sahel where it's heading into the hot season now. So it's just getting drier and drier. And I thought, so, okay, this is one of life's basic resources and access to basic water sources is defined by the WHO as access within a 30 minute round trip collection time. So to explore this basic principle, I actually took a 25 minute round trip to a friend's house to collect my drinking, cooking and showering water for a week. And this was not only a logistical nightmare, planning it into my day and a substantial workout actually carrying the water from A to B, but it triggered a lot of reflections on, on what it means to be in part of a community, the actual infrastructure that we have in place um, to connecting us to water alongside key themes of uh, resilience and mobility as well. Thanks for sharing that experience and exercise that maybe we should all take at one point. I think that's a very interesting experience. And this makes me think of a phrase that has become a bit of a slogan in the adaptation and resilience space, that water is to adaptation what carbon is to mitigation. And I think it's really difficult because in the adaptation and resilience space, we don't necessarily have agreed metrics or shared methods to even develop strategies and evaluate interventions. But there seems to be a lot of momentum behind looking at how water is a unifying medium in adaptation. Everything is touched by water from dealing with too little water and drought to having to deal with too much water and flooding. We've seen some examples that are starting to put this shift in how we value water and put it at the heart of our projects. And some really interesting landscape restoration projects come to mind, such as Room for the River, learning to live with water, then manage water. Also, I'm thinking about another uh, project, Living with Floods, that I witnessed working in Mozambique. Uh, community-based and community-owned mangrove restoration projects. And I'm curious, how do you see this from your work? What 
is happening in your context. Thanks, uh, Jada. And I think you've hit on some really important aspects about water, in particular, that on the one hand, water really is a unifying medium for adaptation that brings people together because it's connected to everything. But at the same time, we also have to deal with these contrasting and sometimes conflicting challenges of too much, too little, too polluted. So sometimes you have to deal with floods and droughts pretty much simultaneously. How do you navigate that space? But for me, in my immediate context in Mali, this somewhat challenging because there is a lack of basic infrastructure to be to begin with, a lot coupled with unregulated urban planning and development, which makes it a, a complex and often chaotic setting to work with. So there's always this pressure of being on the back foot just to be able to cover basic operations. And within the public water, water operator partnership, we co-create annual plans with our local partners and we have to make choices about where we want to invest and the available budget and human resourcing. But right now we're working on shifting from reactionary maintenance towards preventative maintenance, which also requires a real shift in perspective. So bigger projects such as Room for the River feel, feel a bit far away from me at the moment based on the the context that I'm currently working in. Uh, as, as you rightly say, there are more and more initiatives that look at water as part of a larger system, and that's really encouraging. However, there's always going to be challenges in implementing these types of integrated approaches unless those who are most connected and uh, most close to the water are not involved. So a great example where people really were brought to the heart of the the river in, and this has really inspired me, is uh, Drinkable Rivers, which is the brainchild of Leanne Poa. And she created the initiative Mares for a Drinkable Meuse that brings together municipalities along the Meuse River, working together to improve the, the water quality. I think, I, personally, I find this a really inspiring narrative to connect people to water, as the more we understand something, the higher we, we place value in it. And then bringing another local example here in Mali, the Young Water Association realised a caravan campaign that travelled to a few cities and worked on informing the local populations about the value of connecting to the public network. And this aimed to encourage people to be willing to pay and connect to the, the public system by changing what they value. So they placed the, the connection between water and public health. So the value and the importance of health is what influences people's value to water. So we come back again to these multiple values of water and there really isn't just one, uh, one figure that we can put, we can put on it. And, and you were talking about the, the Drinkable Moose Initiative, and it makes me think, uh, and, and you mentioned that it, it brought together uh, several mayors across countries, right, France, Belgium, the Netherlands. And as we know, water doesn't know borders. And that's a huge uh, issue sometime in, in water management and and, and I wanted to know if it led to a supranational movement uh, to improve the, the quality of the water. And, and I wanted uh, 
to hear about your thoughts on on these challenges about like uh, how do we manage to to go to an efficient uh, uh, water management uh, where where we are talking about like river basin that cross like countries many countries uh, with different interests yeah Oof. that's uh, <laughs> that's uh, that's a huge one because it's often such a a big source of conflict as well but scaling back down again to the relatively peaceful setting of the Meuse that uh, Leanne was working with so the mayors of France, Belgium and the Netherlands all came together and they held a, a, a annual mayors for a drinkable Meuse network meeting that saw 35 mayors all come together and yeah it's inspiring to see collaborations through a very concrete idea that if we mistreat rivers, we cannot drink them. It's basic human connection. So I think when you work at such big transnational scales, connecting it to something very human and individual can be a really great tool to connect that. And um, yeah, I think there's, there's a lot to be said for working collaboratively across those big scales, but there's so many other factors and values that play into this Um, into 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 country management of water and the managing the risk perception as well is a huge challenge between these states and I don't want to go too deeply into the the risk management side with all the dis, um, disaster risk production experts who may be listening to this series but um, I do think that this type of common common va value approach is a way to bring people together to foster collaboration and communication and could be of use to, to risk management. And this is one of the things I really appreciate about this COP that we do connect with these other professionals in different disciplines for their perspectives. And I'm, I'm wondering on this topic of valuing water, what do you think are the implications for water hungry industries? Uh, Do we need to phase them out in the same way we need to phase fossil fuels or do we price externalities? And for example, um, if we think about the day zero in Cape Town, in that context where residents and urban businesses were having very limited access to water and, and, and it's still um, very problematic, uh, industrial and export oriented sectors were still allowed to use water as usual. Uh, so how do we have these difficult conversations and how do we decide between which trade-offs are acceptable and what do we prioritize, I guess? You are seriously putting me through my paces today and I would love to have the answer to some of these questions and I'm sure a lot of other people would love to have the answers as well. But these are exactly the, the types of important questions and the wicked problems that make water such a contentious resource and why water and conflict management are so highly interconnected because everyone considers their water use the highest priority. And there's not really often a win-win situation for these types of finite resources. So for me, a major component of this is uh, within social justice that can't be ignored when we talk about access to water. So there are different water tariff structures that exist that work differently in different social and political contexts. 
but all of this assumes that there is a formalized market for water, whereas in many parts of the world, especially in urban and peri-urban areas, the informal water markets exist, mean that the poorest end up paying the most for the water and the heavy consumption industries often get quite cut quite a nice deal in, the, in this way. And then if we think in terms of allocation, making more water more visible and requiring disclosure of water use would be a big step in improving um, and also actually demanding water efficiency at industrial scales. So in terms of phasing them out, as we do fossil fuels, water is embedded in everything. There's invisible, there's water in the clothes that we wear, the food that we eat and uh, the houses in which we live. So phasing, there is no substitute for water either. So the fact that it is unsubstitutionable means that we don't really have a choice other than getting more efficient and having the governance in place that facilitates that efficiency. So for example, um, CDP is currently developing the first set of standardized global water security reporting indicators for the financial sector. And there's currently a survey out there to get some input on this. Maybe we can tag it to the bottom of this podcast or something. But I, I think it would be great for industries to go further in disclosing the water consumption. So for example, energy efficiency ratings on white goods, if we could actually see how much water was used in the production of a pair of jeans, for example, to make water use uh, more visible to people to be, to be thinking about it. And yeah, like I said before, when I had to carry my own water, I was seeing water everywhere. <laughs> like just the flush of a toilet was somewhat like traumatic that I didn't want to see all this effort that I put into just disappear. But if a system existed that had a lower water consumption, I could make informed purchases by renting or buying a house or whatever to be able to do that more mindfully of our water consumption. And like what happened in, in, um, in Cape Town for day zero, everyone suddenly got extremely mindful about every single drop they used. Whereas now it's so easy not to just to just not think about it. Um, yeah, so this whole idea of making the invisible more visible is this year's theme for UN water. And this is all connected to groundwater, um, which is also a very convenient resource that we just don't see. And monitoring that in lots of parts of the world is, is not done. So really we have no clue. There's something quite interesting in what you're saying, um, which is around these two approaches. So one around integrated approaches to water management, and then a second, which is also looking at almost kind of what is the water footprint, as it were. And I kind of feel that sometimes the conversation around metrics, um, and especially I've heard this more and more now as the term being used, almost like carbon tunneling. And it's almost just by looking at carbon as the ultimate metric for the types of interventions that we choose, for the types of technologies that we, um, you know, bring to life and mainstream. I think there is a danger where, you know, you have other um, other considerations that perhaps fall off, uh, you know, while sort of potential vision. And you've got things like biodiversity, you've got things like water. But I think it's really important to start looking at how do you how do you make this visible? As 
as a process of of decision making. Um, And even if we think of, uh, you know, the impact of day to day, so, you know, almost kind of rating, and this is something that you see already on um, washing machines, for example, so rating the amount of water that they use, but that could be extended to actually have other metrics for other consumer products um, and and also to start thinking at a more industrial level rather than just leaving this for consumers right right rather than putting this burden of a million decisions um, on consumers how do we tackle this at an industrial level and really kind of make those trade-offs between do you support your water hungry sectors, whether it's agriculture or whether it's, you know, cotton or whether it's mining? Do you support them because they mean jobs? But what are the implications for the local communities and for the cities that depend on that watershed? Um, and I guess, you know, thinking about these two themes, almost like the, the integrated um, approach to water and um, this notion of just making it visible as a, as a process of decision making. I'm, I'm curious, you know, what does this uh, look like from the context of, of the, the cities and the regions you're working in? Do you see any of this already happening in the West African context or, or where do you think things might be going from, from where we are now? The, the water footprint network does actually exist. There is one, but it's not uh, standardized and it's not um, required. There's, there needs to be more political will encouraging this, well, demanding these water sensitive practices that work towards more sustainable and resilient water security for everybody. So it, it is out there, but clearly we need to make it, uh, we need to make it bigger. But uh, yeah, so coming back to, to this context here, I, oft, I, I don't see it as much as I would like to see it. And I think there is really so much wonderful potential for sustainable, sustainable development through uh, a water lens, viewing the land at a watershed scale to be able to work collaboratively in, in this way. And there's a, a great book by Tim Marshall called The Politics of Geography. And I will forever lament about why watersheds were not used as these political lines, because it makes it so much more complicated for ourselves having to reconcile different governments' priorities in these ways. And for me, like it's a pipe dream to for holistic water management and urban development to become the status quo rather than having to have economic incentives to do this. So in West Africa, because so much of the funding for water management is grant-based, it's therefore all done by projects, by separate uh, consortia or implementing parties. So connecting these initiatives is more and more complicated when the local institutions are not yet sufficiently strong enough to roll out independent programs and connect themselves to a wider strategic plan. So what is positive, though, in, in this region is this year there, there is the ninth World Water Forum. This is the second one to be held in Africa and the first to be held in West Africa, which I really um, would like to think kickstarts this sort of regional collaboration um, that can only strengthen integrated water resources management. And the uh, Malian uh, drinking water asset holder and the wastewater operator will be using this opportunity to connect with their Senegalese counterparts and 
it's also a bilingual conference, which is often a very limiting factor in the West African context because so much content is Anglophone. It leaves, it leaves a lot of people out. So also there's this linguistic importance as well that we need to consider. It's never just a, just a one factor to be able to, to see the context growing in a certain direction when it's hampered by often very practical, practical parts. So on one hand, from what you were saying around the funding for water management being grant funded, um, I was wondering whether you've got any reflections on how does the role of the funder therefore need to change uh, to actually meet the challenges? But then also I'm wondering how does the water sector itself need to change um, to actually make these integrated approaches to water as the norm? Um, I'm I'm wondering what your thoughts are on, on these two dimensions. What I like best about my work with World Waternet is that we are long-term projects. So we have the funding, the project started in 2018 and they run till 2030, which is quite rare in these settings to have such a long-term financial commitment. And it means that we can actually start things now that we don't have to write a report about and have these key... um, indicators realized in an 18 month period like we're not going to get the results that we need in 18 months it's not possible to do that sort of institutional change in that amount of time so I think from that aspect time is is the biggest enabling factor that we're not yet making the most of to do more long-term funding and then for the direction of the water sector itself uh, personally I find it a bit of a running joke that uh, the water sector is often incredibly dry and everybody takes themselves terribly seriously. But now people are really realizing that a lot of the problems in the water sector are not only connected to water and there's not always a technocratic solution that's gonna solve it. There is so far, only so far that technology can take us and we need to work more with social solutions to engage and inspire people to work together. Um, but it is also a, it's a monopoly sector. Often you don't have competing water providers because it's simply too expensive to do that, to manage the transportation networks, to manage the treatment uh, for the, the drinking water treatment, but then also the, the post water treatment. It's, it simply costs too much. Um, but economics aside, water, in my opinion, really is this beautiful way to celebrate coming together and inspiring people and there's um water has been an inherent part of human development since millennia like all of our civilizations sprang up along uh, along rivers and um, deltas these are our, the source of of culture really and drawing on this magic of water is is a really beautiful thing like to think that their water is comprised of two parts hydrogen and uh, one part oxygen. There is though this third thing that makes it water and nobody knows what that is as D.H. Lawrence so evocatively says. That's beautiful. Now to discuss a bit more uh, the implication of, of the topics we've been talking about and how we value water, how we make difficult decisions um especially facing 
the issues um, we have uh, at the moment and, and what this means for the water sector. To discuss uh, the issue also of urban water, because we are now uh, in a context that uh, more and more people live in cities and, and we would also uh, love to learn more about like what does it mean in, in West Africa where you're working, where like cities are growing at a very fast pace, uh, what are the challenges in the water sector? And, and also thinking of the role of blue infrastructure in urban resili resilience, we have very different approaches between the Eurocentric space as place and the West African marginal space. How we, how, how we reconcile these differences for meaningful context sensitive urban development that promotes more maybe heterogeneous landscapes and useful landscapes like that actually are active in the development of, of communities? Don't know if yeah. my question made sense. <laughs> I think it's a really interesting question, but also a really problematic one because the idea of public space doesn't function the same in West Africa as it does in uh, in Europe. So we already, our starting points are already very, very different. And that's, for me, it's been problematic. There is one park in Bamako, the national park, which you have to pay to go in. And um, I actually noticed this morning on my commute to work, a new, I, I'm pretty sure it was a new sign that has gone up because I definitely would have noticed before that said uh, espace public. And I, said, I was like, okay, public space. And it was a, a very small concrete walled square that happened to have a horse in it at the time. And that was the public space. So we have this very uh, interesting interpretation of what public space actually means. Whoever happens to get there first uses it in a, in a particular way. And these, this space is place and the, the whole concept is um, urban development for heterogeneous landscape puzzles me as I sit in traffic jams, often for hours at a time that are caused by what once was a pothole, but has developed into a crevasse in the middle of the road due to the rainy season, where I'm constantly confronted with these intersectional problems as the impact of non-management of surface water runoff has this impact on mobility. And then the link with mobility heavily influences the air quality of which the air quality impacts public health, so on and so forth. You go on and on and they compile and this is so far away from consider considering co-benefit values of blue infrastructure that contributes to the business case for blue-green solutions for climate adaptation. It's, it's like trying to compare or trying to uh, dress an apple up as an orange. And to make these integrated solutions work, I think it requires this real intimate knowledge of space and the subtleties of how they function culturally. And there's a great Brambara proverb that says, no matter how long a log stays in the river, it will never become a crocodile. And that's why for me, reconciling this difference between the Eurocentric idea of space and place and the West African functional use of this space really is, uh, can be brought together by information sharing and empowering students and young professionals to generate their own solutions 
And and from your perspective and experience, and how does water support resilience? Oh, so I think for starters, just mm -hmm. the management of flood water would already during the rainy season, like managing the rainy season is already a big uh, a big challenge to do when there's lots of informal development with no building regulations that means that drainage systems are not connected or well managed so i think for urban water resilience like what we going back to what we said at the beginning having too much water needs to be managed but then most of the year it's very dry so we have to make sure the long-term drinking water supplies are able to be um able to be sustained and during my my water walk I ended up one day going three times to try and collect water because there was a water cut. So I ended up doing an hour and a half's worth of walking and still I didn't get any water because if you don't have somewhere to stock it, you, don't, mm. you, can't, you can't build a, a reservoir. So there's a resilience in all these types of waves by ensuring the supply, but also managing the environmental water that, uh, that are really key for building resilience in, in the long term. Mm, and I really want to pick up on something that you said earlier around um, this sort of tension between different approaches to urban development and almost like different worldviews and different paradigms as to what makes um, urban development successful. And, you know, continuing this theme of contextualizing urban resilience, uh, you know, I think there's quite a general consensus among resilience and adaptation professionals that we need to understand and work with local conditions and norms and beliefs and values rather than um, transplanting solutions from elsewhere. So there is something about, you know, adaptation solutions being adaptive in their own right and, and almost seeking to actually right some of the wrongs of the past, especially looking at the practices that were very much the norm under various colonial rules and looking at how, um, you know, how uh, Eurocentric and, and Western uh, worldviews were imposed um, with, you know, very little or no understanding of, of the place that they were being applied to. Um, so I really wonder, you know, what can we do differently and, and what does that, uh, what does locally led water adaptation look like um, in, the, in the West African and in the Malian context. But I also wonder, you know, whether we can um, talk a bit about um, the different implications for the water and sanitation and hydration systems. So really important urban systems, um, lots of different challenges. I'm just curious, what are your thoughts? Like, how can we adapt adaptation solutions to the local context and and what does that mean um, for Bamako and for Mali? When you brought this question up like something that really came to my mind is the the heritage aspect of these things and we look forward for solutions but actually if we look back the system wasn't broken when colonial powers came into these contexts and put in very eurocentric methods of managing these things for example traditional building materials I mean that your house is, is cool in the hot season and it retains heat in the cold season. I mean, when I say cold season, get down to like 18 degrees. Um, the, um, the materials already existed there. And I think linking back on being inspired by that 
heritage water management uh, methods can really inform the future by simplifying it because we make our system so really, really complex with what we do. And that doesn't necessarily mean that it's a, a sustainable solution. So actually just stripping things back a bit more, I think has a lot of, of value to learn from those approaches. And Mali is still a relatively young country in its setting, even though it's from one of the oldest civilizations in the world. Um, and it was a, a massive empire at, uh, at a point in history. But we, we have really, and I'm so inspired by the colleagues, and young professionals and students that I work with that again, show me what the definition of resilience is. And I have the utmost respect for what people achieve within these uncertain and often limiting, limiting enabling environments. But in terms of what we can bring as additional practitioners is championing, championing, championing these local solutions and the, the platform to be able to share these types of things. And there's some really fantastic think tanks and um, entrepreneurial uh, in incubators that exist. For example, Young Water Solutions is an incredible uh, support network that enables young professionals to do that. Whereas maybe some more decentralized solutions can actually support more sustainable uh, water and sanitation development and for the urban level particularly. I really like to see that as a sector that grows in West Africa, this, this decentralized conversation. In Bamako, linking this to the other side of the water system that people are always a little bit less enthusiastic about talking about when you turn uh, shit into effluent, everyone seems to sort of deconnect a little bit because it's someone else's problem once it disappears away in the system. But when you don't have a sewerage system that transports this waste away, which actually is an extremely inefficient way of treating our waste because water is very heavy to move and it's really not an efficient uh, method. Whereas here, everything is based on uh, uh, septic tanks and these are then emptied by trucks. So you actually are only transporting one material, which is fecal sludge, rather than two materials of water and fecal sludge. So I think this decentralized conversation is one that can really be built upon here. And we think we are conditioned from this Eurocentric perspective that networks are the way to go, but that may not necessarily be the most efficient solution to improving the wash, um, water sanitation and hygiene system. These questions require, like, like you said, Karina, real local solutions to making a choice on that based on best practices and learning from mistakes. Thank you for that, Eleanor. So, uh, so many rich reflections in here. And I kind of feel like, um, you know, water and resilience and adaptation could be uh, a podcast series in its own right. And I know that there's other communities of practice and other community spaces dedicated uh, to this. Um, so, yeah, we're just uh, scraping the surface uh, very much in the shallow. Um, but I'm wondering uh, whether to, to wrap up today's session, uh, I'm wondering, do you have a a favorite water fact or a favorite water quote to wrap up? Uh, my my favorite water quote actually comes from Bruce Lee, 
who just simply says, be water, my friend. How about you, Kiara? So I was just thinking why I was listening to you, Leonor, because at one point you were talking about your how your vision and, and your appreciation of the value of water change with the the walks that you you took uh, bringing water right and I mean I had this experience where I had like a lot of trouble with water uh, at my place where where when I I lived in in Mozambique and we had a lot of problems so we started to have all this problem of of, of flushing you know and there are this saying Uh, when it's yellow, let it mellow. And when it's brown, flush it down. And when you were talking about it, I just remembered that. And now you have no idea how many times I think about it when I flush and I'm thinking, oh my God, this is drinkable water. Excellent. I love this. So many different forms and so many favorite facts and quotes. And, and I guess my favorite water fact, uh, which is actually connected to a different type of water, but it shows just how interconnected the world is, um, is uh, a fact uh, which is quite simple, um, but it's every other breath, so every second breath that we take comes directly from the ocean. And every single day, this still blows my mind. Like whenever I think that the air that I breathe, the oxygen comes from the processes that the ocean system enables. And I think, you know, when we talk about water, actually, sometimes I think the water and the ocean communities are a bit disconnected. Um, and I would love to see more connection between the two because there's so much interconnection and so much richness. 50 to 80% of the oxygen um, comes from the ocean. So we'll leave you with that. And thank you very much for listening. Thanks for listening to Urban Resilience Dialogues. We are Karina Angeloyu and Chiara Tomaselli. Want to get in touch with us? Drop us a line at urbanresiliencedialogues at gmail.com or you can tweet us with the hashtag URDialogues. Chat to you soon.